Welcome to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are glad that you're here with us today. If you're a guest with us, we're honored that you would um, choose to spend this Sunday morning worshiping with us. We're continuing on in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 6, so we're going to read this, the text for this morning and then pray and then jump in. Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are member of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray as we deal with a topic this morning that um, really is everywhere for us, but can also bring um, pain, discomfort, open old wounds, create shame, I pray this morning that your grace and your mercy would be thick this morning, would be strong, your gospel would be clear. I pray above everything else that we would honor you as we look at this particular text this morning. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Um, I want to go ahead and put this at the beginning. Um, last week we mentioned this, but if you were not here, um, this morning um, Paul addresses the issue of sexual immorality. So we are going to talk about sex a lot this morning. I'm not going to be graphic in the way I talk about it, but this whole thing is about sex. So um, parents in the room, if uh, it's still okay to, to send the kids back, um, if, if, if you want to do that. Um, but I just want to say that at the beginning. And we, we find ourselves in the middle of this <clears throat> book in 1 Corinthians, right? And Paul is, is going topic by topic through this book, and, and Paul is the, church, he's the one who planted this church in Corinth, and he is hearing um, testimony, he's probably getting letters, hearing from people that know him, um, that there, there are some major issues in this church. There are some major things going on, and he feels the need to address them, and we've been seeing that in the topics we've been going through in this book. And this morning, in, in, in the, the middle of uh, this chapter, we, we find him talking about sex. And really his issue, the primary issue he's trying to focus on is that sex has become this very casual thing for the church in Corinth. And he wants to raise the bar in, in the idea of sex and really give them an idea on what sex is as it relates to our um, lives as followers of Jesus. Now, 
with this particular topic, Christians have not handled this, at least I believe in my lifetime, very well. Oftentimes, the church just will avoid it because it can be awkward. Um, it, can be, it can create a mess. It can create further conversations that maybe we don't want to have. I don't think that's right. We can demonize it, right? We can say these, these truthful statements, but we do it in a context that doesn't do, it, do any good. Like, sex outside of marriage is wrong, or premarital sex is wrong. And although those are true statements, just said in a very uh, matter-of-fact way like that is not helpful. We, we oftentimes fail to stop and say, this is God's creation, God designed sex. God's the one who was the author of sex. And so we should not run from the topic. And when we hide it or when we, we, we just say these statements, we, I think, can create um, unintentional shame in people. And it creates um, an environment where we just want to hide issues of sexuality and not talk about them because it's a shameful topic and we're not used to handling a topic like this. So I, this is one of the reasons I love preaching through books of the Bible. Well, it's kind of a love-hate, right? Like you, you, I don't love preaching about this, right? It brings some discomfort, but it's in this book, so we're going to deal with it. We're going through the book, and here we find ourselves with Paul talking about sex. But we know this topic matters. We can't help thinking about it. If we have kids that are maybe in that late elementary school age, moving into junior high, we should be thinking about this, right? you're probably already thinking about it, and maybe you're terrified, especially if it's your first kid, like, what am I going to do? Their world is about to get inundated with messages about sex. Um, most of us have, have had pleasurable experiences with sex, especially those of us who are married, but I know in a room this size, many of us have had um, things related to sex that bring um, unfathomable wounds and pain and when we talk about this, it can oftentimes bring those things up. And I just want to stop and recognize that before we move forward. I want to read a quote by a, a, an author by the name of Sam Albury. Sam Albury wrote this book called Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? And if there, it's about 150 pages. does a great job in the length of, of describing Really, God's design for sex. And really, why that question? Well, why does God care who I sleep with? That's kind of the, the flippant statement that our culture makes, at least, and maybe even the church sometimes falls into. And he wrote this great book about God's design and the biblical teaching on sex. So let me read this quote. There are significant challenges for Christians in discussions about sex. More and more, sexual freedom is regarded as one of the greatest goods in Western society. A huge amount has changed over the past decade or so. Just 15 years ago, Christians like me who follow the teaching of the Bible would have been thought of as old-fashioned for holding to the traditional Christian understanding of sex being exclusively for marriage. But now, increasingly, we are thought of as being dangerous to society. Our views on sex have become that significant. Who we sleep with is seen as a supreme human right, Anything that seems to constrain our choice in this area is somehow viewed as an existential threat. So the Christian claim that sex is for a particular context is far more of an offense than it is a curiosity. Why should God care who I sleep with is perhaps less a question and more of just a freestanding objection that doesn't really require 
an answer. So now more than ever, Christians need to speak clearly about this topic and also persuasively. We need to not run from this topic. We need to continue to teach and talk about God's design for sex. God cares about sex because he cares about people. He cares about people because they are made in his image, so of course he cares about sex. He cares about sex because he created it. It was his institution that he created in Genesis 1 and 2 there in the garden with our first, um, the first human beings that he created. And he knows that sex done in an unbiblical way or in an unbiblical context can cause extreme hurt and damage. So here's where we're going really over the next four weeks. I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap. So we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about sex in these verses that we looked at today. Because Paul introduces two massive theological ideas in just these few verses that we just read. Huge ideas that relate to not only sex, but also marriage and some other things in the book moving forward. So we want to just slow down and take two weeks to finish up this this chapter And then the next two weeks, we're going to focus on marriage and uh, singleness, which he addresses in chapter 7. But all really four of these weeks will tie together. And really the thing that ties them together are the the, the theological ideas that we're going to look at um, over the next two weeks. So we're going to to focus on one today that comes from this passage and then one next week that comes from this passage. So in this passage, Paul comes out a little bit different than he normally does with these topics. Usually, um, he, he argues and he, and he persuades, but he's focused on the behavior of the Corinthians. That's what he has been doing previously in this book. But in this case, he starts by not addressing their behavior, but by addressing the theology under their behavior. The, the, the theology meaning the study of God, like the why behind uh, why he's teaching them to um, have a certain kind of behavior as results to sex. Now, we saw last week that he had this list in verses 9 through 10, this list of things that characterized the Corinthians before they became Christians. And the first one on that list was what in English is, is translated sexual immorality, which is the word in Greek for porneia, right, porneia. Um, and it's just this umbrella um, idea of kind of all um, deviant sexual behavior, uh, any kind of behavior sexually that is, that is opposed to what God has laid out in his word. And then in verse 15, we're going to see that Paul specifically addresses uh, prostitutes, the sleeping uh, with prostitutes. And here's why that was, this is such a big deal in their culture, right? When he addresses this idea of sleeping with prostitutes, there's other things we're going to look at as well. But it's a, it's a major deal because of the nature of relationships, especially that of in the context of marriage in this particular culture. Um, New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce um, explains in one of his commentaries that um, the culture here, and we got to remember, this is what Paul was teaching into. So in that culture, men had many different relationships with women in their life. And kind of the more status they had, the more wealth they had, the more this was the case. But it was really an accepted practice across the board for men in this culture. Uh, a man would have um, a, a mistress in the home for intellectual companionship, um, a concubine in the home for kind of sex in the home whenever he wanted it, and then a wife to really manage the household and provide legitimate heirs for him. That was the purpose of the wife um, in this context. Um, and then he would often have a regular spot he would go outside of his home 
um, often a temple to sleep with prostitutes. This was awfully done, uh, often done um, on his way home from work. The temple would provide the prostitutes for men to sleep with on their way home from work. And so this was, this was not just uncommon, but it was really per, uh, permitted. It was permitted in this culture for men to do this. The pagan world in this day and age saw nothing wrong with this. And, and what Paul's worried about is they've imported these, these cultural values into the church, and he gets a sense, you can tell, that they're justifying their sexual behavior because this is just the way it is, right? This is just the way we do things in Corinth and in the Roman Empire, and that's what he's addressing in this chapter. So I say all that just to know that as Paul is saying these things, we may think they're countercultural to our day and age, they were, even, they were way more countercultural to the day and age that Paul was writing this letter into. These are massive um, countercultural truths that Paul's trying to get at as it, results to se- as it relates to sex. Okay, verse 12, let's jump in here. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, and that's a quote, but not all things are helpful. Then he uses the same phrase again, quoting, all things are lawful for me. But then he says, but I will not be dominated by anything. And this, most commentators think that this, this phrase that he quotes is, was a common saying. Yeah, all things are lawful for me. That was something they would say. Um, and, and, and Paul agrees with them to some degree. He, he agrees with them that they are free as Christians from the law in a sense that they are trying to earn their acceptance before God. They said, yeah, you're, he would say, yeah, you're free. You're free from the law in that way. But you're not free from the law in the idea of just the moral behavior and moral claim that God has on you because you're one of his creations. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to live a moral life. Um, when Paul speaks of freedom um, in his letters, he does so in terms of usually food or drink or certain days associated with Jewish customs. Um, circumcision was an example. Things often a part of the Jewish law. He, when he talks about freedom, he's talking about in that context that we are free from those things. That's it relates to our relationship with God. He doesn't talk, he's not saying we're free from being moral. Like we're accepted by God and now we can just kind of go live however we want to live because we've been accepted by him. That's not what Paul teaches. And what he wants to tell the Corinthians that if, if they think they're free here, this is the worst kind of freedom. This is the freedom that leads to, to no joy and no peace because what it is is just giving in to whatever desire you want to give in to, right? You have this sexual desire, and you're just going to give in to it all the time. He's like, what kind of freedom is that? That's like, it's like you're just enslaved and in bondage to your just desires and pleasure. And the world, the culture around you are, are, are tapping into those things. And it's causing you to want more and more of that. And that will not bring freedom, and it will bring just slavery, especially as Paul is saying, you have to go there over and over to get the same level of joy, and it will only end in destruction. And then let's look at verse 13. Another quote here he says, he quotes, Paul quotes, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Another common saying here, his quote, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Um, And what they were doing is they were using this statement, which was true and Paul would agree with. But they were using that and applying it to things like sex. Kind of like, hey, the stomach, it's it's meant for us to eat. So when we feel hungry, then we should just eat all the time, right? If you're hungry, you eat. That's the way the body works. 
And so as it relates to sex, if I want sex, if I have this desire, then I should go find a way to fulfill that desire. It's just kind of like food is what the Corinthians would say. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's, that's not the way it works. Sex and consuming food are different. So stop using that as a justification for uh, your sexual promiscuity or your, the, the casual nature that you view sex in. And so they're saying, well, we don't make this fuss about food. Why would we make it about sex? So he's affirming that statement on food. He's saying, yeah, that, that applies as it relates to food, but don't apply that to sex. And, and this brings us to this, this big theological idea, the first one in this passage that we're going to talk about today, and, and here it is. It is, what you do with your body matters. Very simple and straightforward. What we do with our bodies as followers of Jesus, it matters completely. Our whole bodies matter to God. There's this common belief in this day and age that the soul and the spirit and these more abstract con, uh, concepts inside of us, those are the important things, right? Those are the things that we use in our relationship to God, in our, uh, in our spirituality. But the things like our body, we can do, kind of do whatever we want to with our bodies as long as we're kind of devoting our spirit and our soul to God. We can just kind of live however we want to as it relates to our body. And Paul is trying to correct that understanding in them. And I think we don't often articulate it this way, but we often have this same view of sexual immorality, right? I think we think sometimes that what we do, maybe in the privacy of our own home or what we do with our eyes, doesn't hurt the other person. It's just kind of my own thing. And, if it's, and so sex becomes this casual, less important thing. As long as our hearts are devoted to God, then we can kind of do whatever we want to with our body. And I think that creeps into the church. What we do with our bodies matter. And this goes beyond sex. This is what Paul's focusing on in this passage, but it, 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 this is how we worship with our bodies. This is why we, 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 we encourage in, in this room when we worship, we encourage um, hand-raising. We encourage kneeling if that's what you want to do. We want your whole body to be involved in, in, in worshiping God because our bodies matter. How we treat our bodies, how we look after our bodies, that matters because our bodies matter to God. Let's look at verse 14 where Paul really unpacks this. And God Raise the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. And that's an exclamation there. Never, he says. Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So, in this passage, and this is where we're going to spend the, the majority of the rest of our time, is he's comparing what happens in, in a sexual union and what happens with our union with Jesus. And he's comparing those two things. So let's take those, both of those things individually. Let's take sex, right? Do a quick overview of, of what the Bible says about sex. Well, it tells us in Genesis 1 and 2, God uh, created sex. This is his design. This is how he designed it for a man and a woman in a covenant relationship to express and to show that covenantal love towards one another. This is God's design. It's God's creation. God said th think sex is good in that context. He created it for man and woman to express that covenantal love towards one another. And, and that's important in our day and age when we think of sex more of just a, a physical act to um, relieve or to, to get out our sexual desires. It's so much more than that. And this 
makes sense when we talk about horrific things like sexual abuse and rape. Right? Like we would never say in this context in those conversations, oh, it's just a, just get over it. It's just a physical act. It's just, it's just a release of, of what you're feeling sexually. No, we would never say that in the context of sexual abuse or rape. That's horrific. These things are really, really bad. And so be, and we, we know that, and, and the majority of our world would understand those things are bad. Well, why, if, why are those things bad if it's just a physical thing, right? If it's just a physical thing, we should tell those, those victims, hey, just, just get over it. Just get over it. It's just a physical thing, right? That's the way we would treat sex oftentimes. But there's, it's so much more than the physical. That's why these things are so horrific. And I, I, I would say that with sobriety because I know maybe some of you in this room have experienced those things. If somebody told you, hey, that, that was just a physical act. That, that was all that was. There was nothing more tied up into that. So just, just kind of move on. That would be horrible. You're probably spending years trying to get over the damage that was done to you in that area. Why? Because sex is so much more than the physical. There's, there's, there's something deep down that happens when uh, two people come together in that kind of union. And I think we see that in these horrific events. We have Jesus in Matthew 5, kind of broadening the definition of adultery, right? He's kind of said, you have said that adultery kind of happens what we think in the traditional way when, when you, you cheat on your husband or wife, that's adultery. He said, that's true, but it's more, right? Adultery happens when you look at someone lustfully and, and covet their sexuality, covet wanting to be with them. When you lust in that way with your eyes and your mind, you commit adultery. So Jesus raises the bar for adultery, what adultery is. And so we, we bring that into God's view on sex. So it's not just the physical act. Jesus is saying it's your eyes, it's your mind, it's what you do with your thought life. That also involves sex. Many of you have probably heard this illustration, but um, this uh, illustration of sex as a, 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 kind of comparing it to fire. If you think of fire in a fireplace, right? In a fireplace, um, you put a fire in there where it's supposed to be. Um, it brings warmth. It brings a sense of, 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 of um, comfort, maybe coziness, right? In, in an environment, you read a good book, watch a movie with the family around a fire. Um, just a fire is a really good thing in the appropriate context, right? And it brings a lot of um, it can even bring, help you when you're freezing, right? It can bring safety in that way. But pulled outside of the fireplace, it brings absolute carnage and destruction. It can burn down houses. It can kill people. It can burn entire states and forests. We've seen that this year in California. Fire is a destructive force outside of where it is supposed to be. It's the same thing with sex. In the fireplace, the fire's a great thing. In a campfire, fire's a great thing. We all, Moses love a good campfire, right? But outside of that, it brings carnage and destruction. So that's the biblical view of sex. And this is what Paul's talking about. Now let's talk about our, our, as it relates to our union with Christ. Look at verse 14. Paul says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So he points to the resurrection here to show how much our bodies matter. God gave us bodies here on earth, and we will have bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. 
If bodies weren't important to God, then we wouldn't have bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. We'd just be disembodied, floating spirits and souls. And he would say, probably, if that was the case, then our bodies wouldn't matter that much because we're going to get rid of them anyway, and we're never going to we're going to never look back and never have bodies again after we die. But he says, no, 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 no. You're going to be you're going to have a new body when you're when you when you raise, and and this is going to be a city that you live in for all eternity. Not just going to be floating on the clouds. You're going to actually live in a new heavens and new earth. There's going to be city, and and Jesus is going to be king, and and we're going to be doing stuff with our bodies in heaven. And so our bodies matter, and we've been raised with the Lord, and he lives inside of us now if you're a follower of Jesus. And that, that's what he speaks about in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So as followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. It's the presence of God. The spirit of Jesus lives inside of us. And what Paul is saying, because of the nature of sex, when we go unite ourselves to someone else in, in a sexual act, either with our mind, with our thoughts, physically, we are bringing Jesus into that sexual encounter. Like you just think about that for a second. You are bringing the Holy Spirit. You are bringing Jesus into that encounter you're having sexually. That raises the bar. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Sex matters. Sex is an important thing, and we shouldn't dismiss it, or it shouldn't be casual. Verse 16 again, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute, again, sexual act, union of two people becoming one, supposed to be designed for marriage, um, the two will become one flesh, he says. And so outside that design, then we are uniting Jesus to a prostitute in that situation. Instead of uniting ourselves to our wife, to our husband, which Ephesians 5 tells us it's a good thing because it's somehow this mysterious gospel picture of Christ in the church, man and woman coming together in sexual union. And the scriptures say that is a good thing and that is a beautiful thing. That is Christ honoring in that context. But any other context, we're, we're bringing Jesus into a relationship that is not a covenantal marriage relationship. And that is a problem for Paul. Let's look at Romans 8, 9 through 11, just to give us some more grounding in this idea of this resurrection and the spirit of God living inside of us. Verse 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's a massive implication that Jesus is still alive, right? He's alive, and he's alive in us through his spirit. So we take Jesus wherever we go. One author said this about sex. Something happens in sex. As much as one would like to, he or she can't ever go to bed with someone and leave his or her souls parked outside. Right? We can't, it's, again, it's not just a physical act. And there's no such thing as casual sex, whether it's physically with someone or, so, or with someone in your mind in front of a screen. It's never, ever casual. It's never, ever not a big deal. And then in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Right? This is the first like kind of command he gives us. Flee from it. Based off everything I said, flee from it. Every other sin a person commits 
is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, that's a, that's a big statement there, and a lot of us would, would say, that. well, isn't all sin equal in the eyes of God? In some ways, yes. Equal in, in, in punishment, equal in the fact one sin messes up everything like any other sin, sin can, right? They are, they are equal in a degree in, and I would say, in, in God's eyes, but this passage shows us that there's something, the effects that it has on us, sins differ, right? And this is what Paul is saying here. Sex, so there's something about sexual immorality that affects our, our deep, deep inside of us more than other sins would. So, what should we do here, right? The, the, the command here is flee sexual immorality. Now, I want to talk to, to close, I want to talk to, I think, maybe two groups of people here. I'm assuming, uh, or maybe three groups of people. No, group number one, you're, you're maybe feel like you have victory in this area. You, ha- you are um, doing well in this area. Um, you're fighting sin well um, in this area. And so this doesn't apply to you as much. I would still watch out and I would listen to the next, uh, the next two groups I'm about to address. But you, that might describe you. The second group I want to talk to are maybe those of you in the room who are who are just kind of playing with sexual immorality. You think it's not a big deal. You think that it's just something that's kind of different. It's not a big deal. Um, I would say, I would caution you, and, and hopefully there's some conviction happening here. If not, there needs to be. Paul's saying flee from sexual immorality because of everything he's just talked about. What we do with our bodies matters. It matters. And Jesus, again, raises the bar in Matthew 5 with sex and adultery. So I would say to you, repent. Like, look at the text. Search your heart. Search your soul. Is that bringing you joy? Is that bringing you freedom? Is that bringing you peace? Is that bringing you closer to your relationship, in your relationship with God? Do you feel like you're living God's purpose for you and you're doing what he's made you to do? If not, it may be because you're looking for something, you're looking for something to bring you joy in a place you were never meant to find it. So I would urge you to repent. Now the third group, um, those of you in here who are feeling convicted, and I said it at the beginning, but oftentimes when we talk about sex, it just brings shame, it opens old wounds, it opens all hurts. And I want to I make sure you hear me this morning. And I want to make sure you hear me by by. by helping you remember uh, an episode in the Gospels when Jesus is talking to someone who's been um, convicted of adultery, right? The woman committed, who committed adultery, right? And there's no question, there's no ever question in that, in that story that she committed adultery. Like, there, there's no one who ever said, maybe or maybe she did not. No, it was, it was proven and she was guilty and she was about to be stoned and killed by a group of men. Jesus comes to her and says, those, those of you who were without sin, throw the first stone at her. They all dropped their stones and left because, one, Jesus said it, but they were, they were pierced to the heart and they realized, okay, we can't do this. Like, we can't be judged here because we're, we're not without sin either. And then when it's Jesus and her alone, he gets down on her level. It says he writes in the dirt and she's on the ground. So he's obviously on the ground with her, eye to eye, looks at her. And he said, where, where are your accusers? Where are the people who are putting you on trial? Where are the people who want to condemn you to death? She looks around and says, they're nowhere. They're not here. They're not here, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Now, 
Why in this moment did Jesus not have to lay it on and say, hey, you need to flee for sexual liberty? Do you realize how, how bad that is, how awful that is? Some people need to hear that, but in that moment, she was already broken. You think, you think she needed to be reminded that she was an adulterer? No. She was publicly shamed and humiliated and, and, and this close to being murdered for her sin. She didn't need more conviction. She needed grace. She needed mercy, and Jesus poured it out on her in that moment said, I don't condemn you either. Probably smiling, probably looking directly at her eye, probably saying with this, the, the, the warmest, most fatherly voice you could ever imagine, and neither do I. Probably helps her up. And he tells her before she leaves, though, go and sin no more. There's that quiet reminder, like, I forgive you, and I love you, and there's no one that's going to condemn you for this. But remember, like, let's, let's not walk the adultery route anymore. Let's not do this anymore because see, see where it got you? You don't want to be here anymore. Go somewhere else. And so that would be my message to you. Those of you who are struggling with this, you have baggage, you have pain with this, come to Jesus. He's not going to condemn you because of this. If you're in Christ, if you're saved, if you're a, if you're a child of him, he will not condemn you for this. But if you're in the middle of, 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 of fighting this right now, don't do it alone. Bring it into the light. Find someone to talk to about this. Find someone that confesses to. Bring it in the light. Find someone to walk alongside of you in your, um, in your fight against this. It's the first step today. You come to Jesus and, he, and you believe he forgives you. You don't have to live in shame anymore. But now the hard work begins. And it's hard work to overcome this. Bring community in. Remember the gospel, though. Remember that you, you don't need to be caught in the cycle of shame that often sexual sin brings. You don't have to be caught in that. Believe the gospel and find someone to help you fight this sin. Let's pray. Father, again, I, I love your word because we, we know that this topic of sex, it's a huge deal. It affects all of us in some way. It affects our children. It affects our marriage. If we're single, it obviously affects us in trying to, 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 to stay pure and to stay um, um, honorable to you in, our, in, our, in the way we look at people and how we approach sex. And so we need help. We need help. And I'm thankful that you give us this passage in your word, passages like these, like Genesis 1 and 2, like Song of Solomon, like... Uh, places in Ecclesiastes, like places in the Gospels and other places in your teaching. I, I love that you, you're not afraid to address this issue, and we need it. Help us. If someone's in here and, and they are not taking this seriously, I pray that your spirit would, would break them, would convict, not bring shame, not bring um, just this, to, that pushes, pushes them back into the cycle of sin, but it would Create conviction. God brought conviction and bring them into the light. And if there are people in this room that are like the woman who is kneeling about, feeling that they're about to be condemned because of their sexual immorality, I pray that you would, re that you would help them put their, themselves in the place of the woman who's gazing at Jesus, Jesus looking at her with this tender fatherly look and says, no one condemns you and neither do I. And I pray that that would melt the shame, that would melt the hardness of heart that maybe has developed in people because this is a hard battle and there's people throwing up their hands. I pray you would help us, Spirit. 
It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.